One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 127, Q&A 2023, part toru. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara on the rohe of Muiupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Let's crack into it. The first question I have got here is from Waffles, who does the podcast Waffles and Mates Talk About Things. Waffles is really cool. I've met them in person um, because they are a New Zealand uh, podcaster as well and Waffles has actually DM'd for me a few times in various capacities playing Dungeons and Dragons so that's pretty cool as well so I know Waffles I guess reasonably well because the New Zealand podcast community is quite small as you probably might expect Um, but Waffles and Mates Talk About Things is an improvisational podcast comedy podcast um, which is really really funny you know just improvising all sorts of random shit for all sorts of different things it's really really good i highly recommend it it is very funny it's very kiwi humor i guess is what i might describe it as um so if that's kind of your your vibe then please uh, do go and check it out so thank you waffles for these three questions actually that you gave me um the first being what's one thing that's been lost to history that you'd love to rediscover now i have I guess a few different answers for this. One that I'm kind of interested in is where is Alexander the Great's tomb? I think that's a really weird and kind of interesting thing that we don't know where that is and maybe it never existed. But like the story around it is kind of compelling and all that sort of stuff. But I think the really big one for me is around uh, music and games. Because for a lot of ancient music, I'm talking like pre-classical period, so 
you know, sort of Iron Age or, or Bronze Age, I guess, sort of period. So pre-Roman, you know, Mesopotamia, that kind of stuff. For a lot of music around that time, we have the lyrics, but we often don't have the melody of how a song was played. Sometimes we might have the instruments that would have likely been used, and sometimes we don't, but usually we don't exactly know how these instruments were tuned or in what manner they were played or how they accompanied any singing. There's just a lot of different variables and unknowns around how the these pieces were composed and likely uh, played for an audience. And we're unlikely to learn how these songs were sung. It's as you say, something that's kind of just lost to history because we don't have records of these things. And, you know, obviously we can't pick up a, a USB stick, for example, that's got an ancient song on it because it didn't exist back then. So it's hard to convey songs on, even on written like paper or, or clay tablets or anything like that. So again, we're unlikely to learn how these songs were sung. But I think, you know, music is an intrinsic part of the human experience. So it's a bit sad that we'll never get to hear those songs. And I think it would be really interesting if we could hear them again in their original format. It's music, I think most people will agree, is something that kind of transcends um, time and space and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's something quite you know, obviously emotional, but also kind of, I don't want to say primal, primal is not really the, the correct term, but there's something about particularly music that's very old, and I'm not talking like from like the Beatles from the 60s or some shit, I'm talking, yeah, again, I'm talking about like stuff that's like thousands of years old, there's something about it knowing that people listened to that music thousands of years ago that's quite in, undescribable, indescribable, un, in there's some way this you can't really quite describe that feeling of knowing that the music you're listening to was listened to people thousands of years ago it's just it's just so good it's just so good in a similar vein with uh, games, I, I really like playing board games. Um, I'm a big board games nerd. Um, I recently bought a copy of Mutorede, um, which I found in a shop here in Wellington, which I was really chuffed with because I've never found a commercial version of that game. Um, so that was really cool. So I really like playing board games. And, you know, as such, I find it really interesting when game pieces are found in archaeological sites. Um, sometimes we'll find little chess pieces or counters or colored rocks or you know various whole, whole difference of things game boards game boards are a lot rarer um, but sometimes you'll find game boards as well um, but any of that sort of stuff i find really interesting there's a really cool die like a, a die that you roll a six-sided die from sometime during the roman empire i'm not quite sure of the year or the century specifically but, you know, it's roughly about a thousand years old, or two thousand years old, sorry, this six-sided die, and the dots on it are in the same configuration as the six-sided die that you'll see today. You know, the, the five is in that sort of cross-shaped pattern, the six is in the two, three, three-dot parallel lines, you know, that sort of thing. And I genuinely thought when I saw this originally, I genuinely thought that that meant it was fake. But I found through, actually, I saw this on Twitter. So it was Fake History Hunter on Twitter, which is a great Twitter account if you're 
on there highly recommend following them uh she actually posted a um, a source that indicated that this was actually real and that configuration the dots and and where they are on the die is actually 2000 years old and we still use that today which i think is amazing brilliant so interesting kind of a shame that uh most of the d6s that you'll get from you know D shops and stuff actually show the arabic numeral on the die instead of this configuration because again that's just so interesting i just think that's great but just like uh with the music uh, when these game pieces are found or these game boards they're usually not whole you know these pieces missing the the board itself is probably broken in some way you know these have been you know in dirt or sand or wherever else for possibly thousands of years and so we don't usually know uh, how these games kind of came together how these games uh, were played and of course, it would be fascinating to know how these games, you know, how they played and, and what the strategies were and all that sort of stuff. But of course, that's unlikely due to the passage of time. Same with music. And because of that, I think we are really lucky that we know um, how some of the games, some of the historical games were played. The the three that jump to mind um, are obviously Mutorere. We talked about that in previous episodes. Um, it's an ancient Māori game. We also know how Hneffeltafel, the um, Viking sort of chess it's sometimes called, we know how to play that. I've got a copy of that in my house as well, which my partner made for me, which was very nice. And the Royal Game of Ur is probably the other really famous one as well, um, which was discovered by uh, one of the guys at the British Museum whose name escapes me. Um, but Tom Scott, did a video on that a few years ago if we've got any tom scott fans uh in the audience and as i said i've got a copy of both hneffeltafel and mutorere in my house now and it's always amazing to be able to play them knowing that people played that exact same game or more or less that exact same game for fun hundreds and possibly even thousands of years ago and just kind of in general i think recreation and fun is something that's a bit underappreciated sometimes as a subject of historical interest uh, for the wider public obviously there's historians that specialize in that sort of area but i think for the general public it's not it's often not something that's on their radar that they think about when they think of cool things to learn from history you know usually they're they're thinking about you know kings and battles warriors politics and all that kind of stuff but i personally find subjects like what people would do in their off time what music did they listen to what games did they play what stories did they tell each other what kind of gossip were they discussing i find that kind of stuff really interesting because that's what i you know that's what i live for no one no one well i mean i guess some people you know live for their work and obviously how people worked in history is obviously really interesting as well but the the stuff you do for fun that's the stuff that people generally live for that's the stuff that they were enjoying they weren't doing that because they had to they weren't doing that because it was key to their survival they were doing it because they thought it was fun and it brought them enjoyment and that's very human and that really i think connects me to the past in a way 
I don't know. I just, I just think music, games, people, things that people were doing for recreation. I think that's just, I just think that's really interesting, which is, <laughs> I mean, that's what all of this is, right? But I just, I just think that that is there is something very compelling. There is something about music and games and recreation. I'm not even into that much into music modern music like in my day-to-day i'm not really big a big music person and i don't know bands and i don't know to, i don't go to concerts but something about historical music and historical games really just really just speaks to my soul in a in a way that other other things don't you know you might not but <laughs> that's 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 what i'm that's my story and i'm sticking to it <laughs> All right, the second question from Waffles. What has been the most surprising thing you've learned from the pod? And I thought a lot about this, and the slightly cop-out answer is that, you know, people actually listen to it. The, the thing that every podcaster says is, wow, I'm really surprised anyone listens to me. But I'm going to go against the grain here and not say that, um, because if I'm being totally honest i knew that people would listen to this podcast because i was pretty certain there were people out there like me who had minimal new zealand history education in school wanted to know more and also happened to listen to other history podcasts i didn't think that would be a small demographic i made this podcast in the sense that th- this, I still make it this way with, I, this is something I would listen to. If somebody else was making this, this is something I would listen to. And that's kind of my benchmark, is if I make an episode and I can listen back to it, and I find myself doing this kind of frequently, is I'll go back to an episode, listen to it, just because, I don't know, just to kind of see if I've made any improvements over time, and I'll find myself not stopping, not and not analyzing it but instead just listening to the content and at that point i know yeah I've, yeah this is this is good this i'm happy with this i think this is good because if i'm listening to it just out of enjoyment and i researched and wrote the fucking thing and recorded it and i'm still going like lost in in listening to the information then i i i reckon i think i'm onto a winner you know so I, I know you you know in New Zealand we have tall poppy syndrome and you're kind of meant to be a little bit humble and it sounds really up myself to say I knew people would listen to this but it's true I knew people would listen to this or well, I was like pretty sure that there would be people like me and that there was a gap in the market if you will for this so yeah so that's the cop-out answer Um, which I'm, again, not going to say that I'm surprised people listen to the podcast. The real answer to this is twofold, I guess. One is that probably the most surprising thing is the doors you can open just by sending an email and having a nice title or a bit of an audience. You know, just, you see something cool that you want to talk about with someone, you know, who's like quite official, and you just flick them an email. And just be like, hey man, this is who I am, this is what I do. Would you like to come and talk about this thing with me? Usually they say yes. And that's actually the way that I get most of my interviews, is just basically just cold emailing people. 
For example, the way that I got the Rongnua Māori interview with Donna Kerridge was because I saw an RNZ article talking about the Therapeutic Products Control Bill, or um, whatever that was called, and I, she was mentioned in it. She was a, like the, the person that they'd asked questions about it. So I took that article, googled her name, found her website, read a bit about her, and it had a contact form on that website. So I flicked her an email and said, hey, this is who I am. Um, I've seen this, this article and stuff about you. Would you like to come and talk to me? And she emailed back. It was actually like 8 p.m. at night, and she emailed me back like really quickly, which I was very surprised by. And she said, hey, that'd be awesome. When do you want to set that up? Which was fucking great. That was amazing. And she was super nice. All of the people that I interview are super nice. Um, just by sheer virtue of the fact that they actually want to come and talk to me is, is already like a really good start. <laughs> that They want to take time out of their day to come and talk to me and, and share that knowledge, not with just with me, but with all of you as well. So that's how I got that one. And the Biscuit Tin interview from a few years back where... Um, you know, we went and talked about the, the biscuit tin that's used in the members' bill selection process in Parliament to this day. I just DM'd the parliamentary um, Twitter account. I just DM'd them on Twitter. You know, the parla Parliament's got a, a social media account on Twitter, and they post about, you know, what's going on in Parliament today, um, which is totally neutral. It's non It's non-political. They're just saying this is the bill that we're debating today or this is the ceremony that's going on today so it doesn't involve any like mps or, or taking sides or anything so i dm'd that account and said hey okay this is who i am this is what i do could i come and talk about the biscuit tin and they said sure is there anyone in particular that you'd like to talk to and i said well not really you know i don't have anyone in particular in mind just someone who is knowledgeable about the biscuit tin that would be able to answer my questions basically and they they went away and came back and said sure um would you like to come and talk to the clerk of the house who is like a really quite highly ranked person in parliament and yeah and so i was like hell yeah so i did i went into their big fancy building and interviewed the clerk of the house which was great um and so yeah all of the interviews that i get are pretty much yeah just cold emailing them and they're just very nice people who say yes and, and yeah take the time out of their day to come and talk to me which is amazing and I'm ever so thankful that they do that because I'm just some I'm just some guy because yeah. <laughs> I guess the you know the other side of that is I say that most people say yes most people who email me back say yes I've had a number of emails that just go unanswered and that's fine all well and good you know that if they don't want to talk to me absolutely fine as i said i'm just some guy so if they don't want to talk to me that's totally okay and and you know i have emailed people and they just don't get back to me but of the people that do get back to me pretty much everyone says yes which is great um, and amazing and i love that um, but it was very surprising in the sense that i thought i'd have to jump through a bunch of hoops to go talk to various people you know if i'm just emailing a person then you know sometimes i you know you wouldn't expect there to be too many hoops to jump through it's just the person setting up a time and, and all that sort of stuff um, but for people like again the clerk of the house or the manager of the repatriation team at Tapapa, i thought all right i'm gonna have to sign all these documents and and talk to all these people especially with parliament you know i had to go through security and stuff i made a fucking fool of myself but i uh, you know to go onto the actual physical site you have to have a bit of there's a bit of paperwork involved not much but i thought i'd have to jump through all these different hoops because these are very important people 
with very important jobs and they're very busy and they just i just didn't they they just say right yeah here's the time here's the day show up <laughs> i'd go great so yeah so that was very surprising is that it's very easy to get these people to come and talk to me because usually i guess part of it is usually i'm targeting targeting sounds a bit a bit maybe a bit aggressive but usually the people that i'm asking to come on are people that are very passionate about what they do and just the opportunity to get to talk about these things is they lap that up they're like yes um in terms of though something that is history specific i think what always surprises me is how relatable the people of the past are which kind of goes back a little bit to what i was talking about with the games and the music in the previous question just generally in my interest in human recreation because again it's kind of cool to know that a thousand year old game that my ancestors may have enjoyed also brings me joy to play today it's just it's a human connection it's a thing that transcends time and space as well because of course my ancestors are from not from new zealand or aotearoa they're from um primarily england kind of i guess even more specifically in my research into pre-european maori there wasn't a specific aspect that really struck me as relatable but there was lots of of little things that i was like yeah i feel that I understand that. And one I remember in particular was someone who was wanting to avenge the death of their family member. And kind of as part of the rhetoric he was putting out there was as a threat, he said he would be like the toy toy, which if you're not from New Zealand is a bush that has very sharp leaves that give you lots of like little paper cuts if you aren't careful. And I just thought that was so relatable because I've been cut from from toy toy and it really fucking hurts and so for this guy to be like i'm gonna be like this razor sharp grass and become your worst nightmare i just thought that that was a a great line i just thought that was so interesting and i got immediately what he was getting getting at and so it was stuff like that even though that person isn't you know he's not my ancestor and there's absolutely no way he could be my ancestor but because I live in Aotearoa and a lot of the plants and animals I have been around all my life also existed in the time of pre-European Māori, it gave this uh, sense of relatability and connectedness of like, although I don't have the experience of having to avenge the death of a family member, I kind of get where this guy is coming from because I know what Toy Toy is and have been cut by it before. So just, I guess it's, um, in terms of, yeah, pre-European Māori, it's an environmental relatedness to kind of know that, yeah, the plants and animals and the, not necessarily the climate, I guess, too much, but like just the, the environment that they were in is relatively similar, at least in terms of, again, yeah, plants and animals, is relatively similar to what I grew up in. The, the kind of birds that I see now are the same sort of birds that they would have seen as well. So, yeah, there's an environmental uh, environmental relatedness there that I I find that, that that's how that's how I I found that connection and I thought that that was very surprising as well. I hadn't expected to to feel that connected to Māori in that sort of way because again, 
my ancestry is from somewhere else and so yeah i just found that kind of kind of interesting that yeah even though people back then the 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 society was so different to what it is now there was still some level of relatability there that i was like yeah i i get where you're coming from when it comes to toy toy and it it really hurts and why you'd want to indicate that you're going to be toy toy because it really hurts and you're wanting to be avenging this family member yeah so i thought that was kind of surprising all right waffles is his final question where do you see the future of nz history going which i thought was kind of a funny question because being like where do you see the future of the past going um i thought was a, was a just i don't know i thought that was funny but i get what you, i get what you're asking i get what you're saying so i think it's gonna get better that's my hope anyway especially in the sense that schools are now teaching more new zealand history than they have ever before which is obviously a good thing back when i was at high school sort of approximately 10-ish years ago now i learned basically no i was taught basically no uh, new zealand history pretty much other than the the treaty te or waitangi and even then it was it was not great so the fact that they're teaching a much wider range of new zealand history is obviously much better the fact that they are talking about you know the new zealand wars and the colonization of new zealand and anything that's basically not world war ii as well and i think there's also a bit of pre-european stuff in there as well the fact that they're covering a lot wider range of different things um, and different topics is obviously better because that wasn't what was happening in the past i'm not familiar with the specifics or of what is or is not being taught but assuming it isn't things like the moriori myth and again it isn't just tetariti i think that's a big improvement already so hopefully in the next few decades we will see a lot more young people being more informed about our history and how we got to where we are today over the last sort of five to ten years there definitely has been a lot more interest in our history than previously so i hope that continues as well not just because that might mean i get some more listeners although that would be a great side effect but i think it is good for everyone to have at least a basic understanding of their country's history and some of the main events that shaped it um, in our case that Titiriti or Waitangi is obviously a big part of that, but the New Zealand Wars are also a big part of that. And the arrival of Europeans and how Europe uh, colonised New Zealand and why and how they went about it, all of that's very important. And of course, lots of different things in the 20th century as well. Springbok tour, nuclear free movement, the World Wars are obviously a big one as well. But having a basic understanding is, I think, pretty pretty essential and pretty good what's also really important is that we're having a lot of conversations now that haven't been had in the past like should we really have statues of captain cook when he probably wasn't a great guy and at least a significant portion of the new zealand population views him in a extremely negative light um, because of what he did to maori you know he killed a bunch of maori when he came here and sailed around and that sort of stuff which was in um, the gisborne area so a lot of people don't view him as a, a super great guy should 
we be venerating him through statues? That's a good conversation to have. So although they're difficult conversations to have, and of course there are a bunch of people that are not having those conversations in good faith, I hope we keep having them, that we keep re-evaluating our past and thinking critically about the things we decide to glorify, especially in the context of colonization, especially in the context that a significant portion of New Zealand's population has had a very different experience to the European population here in New Zealand. The Māori experience has been very different over the last 200 years than the Pākehā experience. So, you know, we need to keep that in mind when we're, we're talking about these things and, you know, it helps in understanding why certain people might feel extremely differently about some of these things that we've just taken for granted. Again, statues of people that were really bad people. So that, that I think, is those conversations are good. They are good to have. They're not always nice, but we need to have them. So... I think that's good. I did tell a slight lie. Actually, Waffles has got one last question. This is, I guess, a quick one. What's one question you were hoping to get asked so you'd have an excuse to talk about it? Um, There was two questions I was hoping to get asked, and both of them got asked, which was great, which was uh, questions about my tech setup, because I've recently upgraded it, so I'd love to talk about it, Um, and also questions around my sources, because it's not something that people have asked me in the past i guess and i do bring up the sources sort of relatively often but it is something that i i guess i did kind of want to talk about anyway because sources are important it's good for you guys to at least be somewhat familiar of where i'm drawing this information from and i guess how i take that information and turn that into something that you can listen to because there's a lot of shit in that stuff so those were the two questions that i was hoping to get asked All right, I've got a few questions from Jester Kiwi. Thank you for these questions, um, Jester Kiwi. He says, where did your love of history come from and why in particular the Māori aspect? So to answer the first question or the first part of your question, where did my love of history come from? I've kind of always been uh, interested in history in some form or another. It wasn't until I got into high school that I really started kind of pursuing it more as an interest um it was just you know before then it was just something that kind of came up and every time it came up i was like man i'm really into this but it wasn't until i got to choose it as a subject in my final three years of high school that i was like yeah i'm like really into this like i'd like to do something with this or i you know i want to learn more about this so like back when i was in primary school i remember we did a project on ancient egyptians and i was really interested in that learning about you know the pyramids and the pharaohs and and egyptian gods and and all that sort of stuff obviously at a at a primary school level um and i remember thinking that was great and there's a specific instance i'm not sure if i've talked about this on on here before but i remember there was a specific instance where one of the teachers had a a friend or something that was from egypt or he, he lived in egypt and for whatever reason he had come over to new zealand for a holiday or some work thing or whatever Whatever, however this ended up happening, one of the teachers was in contact with an Egyptian guy who was in New Zealand currently and somehow convinced him to stand in front of 30-something uh, like nine-year-olds and answer questions on Egypt, 
which at the time I thought was really interesting and really cool. This is a real Egyptian man. This is amazing. So we're asking him all these questions and he's trying to reply because he did his his grasp of English was not super great, which was fine, you know, to be expected. But yeah, so we were asking him all of these questions and he's doing his best to answer them. And that was great. And it wasn't until years later that I realized not necessarily how fucked up it was, but how how this guy must have felt when he realized what he'd gotten himself into because of course egypt has had hundreds thousands of years of history post ancient egypt you know it's now a muslim primarily muslim country they speak arabic all that sort of stuff so there's the here's this probably muslim arab man standing in front of us and all of us eight or nine-year-olds have just been learning about ancient Egyptians. So when the teacher stand gets this person up in front of us and says, this is a real-life man from Egypt, we naturally assumed that this man was an ancient Egyptian or that his culture reflected what we'd been learning in class, which was ancient Egypt. So, of course, we're asking him all about these questions about ancient egypt and like ra and horus and pyramids and pharaohs and whatever else and i i don't remember any like specific question or any specific answer he gave but that was definitely the vibe of the questions that we were giving and yeah it wasn't until years later that i realized this guy probably didn't know a lot of that stuff because why would you maybe he was a history major i don't remember but I, just, I don't think that was the case because I distinctly remember his face being one of confusion and maybe fear. So I'm very sorry, anonymous Egyptian man that came to Invercargill in the early 2000s. You didn't deserve that. I hope I'm misinterpreting that situation. But if I'm not, I'm very sorry that that happened to you. But I have very fond memories of it many years later. So thanks. Uh, but yeah, so that was a really interesting one that I had early in primary school. Um, and then when I got to high school, when I got to year 11, which is roughly 16 years old, um, I ended up doing history as a chosen subject. You know, when you get to a certain age in high school, you get to be able to choose your subjects. And I chose history, which sort of happened by accident. I was trying to do ICT. You know, when you go down and you choose what subjects you want to do, you have to consider the timing of when those those classes are on. Um, and so I wanted to do ICT, which is like computers and stuff. And that didn't work because I also had to do like some other, you know, I had to do like maths and English and stuff. And so when I'd done all the, the subjects I chose, ICT couldn't fit. And the only things that could were either metalworking or history and i sure as shit wasn't going to do metalworking because that's i'm not good at that sort of thing um so i sort of accidentally ended up in history yeah which my mum I've, I've definitely said this before which my mum didn't think i'd like because mum hated it um when she was at school which was interesting because i went to the same school as my mum and so because of that and because the history teacher was there for so long the history teacher i got was the same one that my mum had which was hilarious so yeah and he was very passionate extremely passionate you know if it wasn't for him if if you had to choose one person where did my love of history come from if you had to choose one person he's 
probably pretty high on the list if he's not number one he's probably number two his his influence on uh the fact that i even pursued history any more than just a, a thing that i did at high school because i didn't do it at university i went to the into you know zoology when i went to university i went to do science but the fact that i even considered doing listening to history podcasts or reading about history in my free time or even starting this podcast at all ultimately the foundation the bedrock that all of that is built on is those three years of of his class really and so yeah his influence is yeah is the big one i guess really and it was a really it was really funny actually because i remember very early on in that class it was, it was it was one of the first few classes that we did the first topic that we did was the irish independence movement you know how ireland got independence and so one of the first classes was kind of about the british empire and its makeup and you, you know kind of setting the scene for why ireland wanted independence which of course involved the british empire and one of the questions that he said he asked the class was what was the country or the place that they considered or that they called the the jewel in their crown and there was just this weird moment where no one was saying anything because no one knew the answer but i had this weird thing in the back of my mind where i was like i'm pretty sure it's india and i don't know why i know that <laughs> so i put my hand up and i said yep I, it's india and teacher goes yep yeah, you're right it is and so that was great i uh, felt pretty good about myself and then after class had finished he pulled me aside it pulled me aside and he said he asked me he said how'd you know that and i said i don't know i just i just did i don't know i read it somewhere or something and so that was kind of i guess the 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 day that i kind of realized hmm i'm actually interested in this and apparently some of this information gets retained. I also remember a time in primary school where a teacher asked a question, who was the uh, monarch of England during some late 19th century event? And I was just like, I don't know, put my hand up and I went, Queen Victoria? Because I knew Queen Victoria had reigned the longest out of all of the English monarchs. So I thought, yeah, I mean, hedge my bets if she reigned the longest then yeah she's probably you know there's probably a good chance it was her um and she goes yeah you're right it was queen victoria and then she says to the teacher aide yeah thomas is really good at remembering dates and at the time i remember thinking no that's not right i just picked the one that i knew she you know she she ruled the longest so i was just again hedging my bets but yeah again later i realized yeah i am kind of good at remembering dates so you know she she was right in the end so that's yeah so that's kind of i guess a brief history of where my interest and enjoyment of history comes from as to the second part of your question why in particular the maori aspect that isn't necessarily i i mean i obviously am very interested in the maori um, aspect of new zealand's history and part of that is because i am not maori and so it's a different culture different cultures are interesting um, regardless of whether it's maori or an asian culture or um, a european culture like french or german or whatever that diff different cultures are just inherently interesting it's also interesting of course because i live here it's a culture that is directly related to me and that i am at least somewhat immersed in in terms of like 
I see Te Reo Māori all the time around the place on signs and things. Hear it on the telly. The the news anchors say Kelda when they start their their news briefing. So you know it's it's a it's a culture that I'm vaguely familiar with at the very least. And so I find you know that it has a it has some sort of relevance to me. I guess is what I'm I'm getting at there. But I I I guess what I'm trying to sort of get at is I wonder because I've asked, I've been asked these sorts of questions before, like why in particular are you interested in Maori culture and history? And I get the odd feeling it stems from a misunderstanding of why I have structured the podcast in the way that I have in that I've been talking pretty much exclusively about pre-European Māori culture. And it's not it's not necessarily because I'm really interested in that, and so I was like, I really want to research that and look into that. That is obviously an element. I'm not denying it. I'm not, I'm not being like, I, I hate all of that stuff, and I'm really glad it's gone. That's not true. What I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying that that's obviously an element, but I suspect it stems... There's perhaps um, people who ask me this question, I think, misunderstand that the position I come from when I structured the podcast and that I wanted to talk about pre-European multiculture is that I did it primarily because I felt it was the right thing to do. Because I felt that there was no other way that you could talk about New Zealand history without starting with pre-European Māori at the very least you need to to do that to understand why maori were reacting interacting the way that they were interacting with europeans you need to understand the culture that they were coming from to understand why they were acting in that manner at the very least so that's why i did it because you need to do that to understand why they were doing the things that they were doing and also it's the right thing to do because obviously Māori are a huge part of New Zealand. They're the original people, the indigenous population of New Zealand, of Aotearoa. So to ignore a huge chunk of their history is just, I was never going to do that. That was not something that I was going to do. So that's, yeah. So I hope I'm not misinterpreting that question, but I just, yeah, sometimes when I get questions like that, I, I yeah, I sometimes wonder whether they're, they're coming from a, a perspective that is different to mine where doing the pre-european stuff was always it was just there was absolutely no way i wasn't going to do it i was always going to do it and it's coming from a place where those people think that i kind of felt like i had an option to do it whereas i don't feel like i had an option to do it and that's fine i'm not saying like i got locked into this thing but i felt like that 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 if i'm gonna do this we have to do this right and this is how we're gonna do it right so yeah again i apologize if i've if i've misinterpreted that question as i said i still do have an interest in in maori culture and history because i think it's relevant to me um it's relevant to new zealand um it's a different culture different cultures are just inherently interesting i'm trying to read between the lines i guess a little bit there so um, i hope i haven't offended you or anything just um yeah trying to understand the underlying reason for the question Alrighty, the second question from just a kiwi what influences and or mentors have you had on your chosen historical studies so this i guess like many of these questions is twofold primarily it has been the history podcast community at least in terms of like influences on my history podcasting 
career, I guess you could call it. So Robin from the history of Byzantium was a huge help um, in the early days. I sent him an email before I actually started the podcast with a bunch of questions being like, this is my idea. This is how I think I'm going to approach it. What do you think? Is this good? Is this bad? Do you foresee any problems? You know, just some general questions. Where did you find, where, how did you find sources? You, you'd think that's actually kind of an obvious thing just go out and buy books but at the time i had no idea where do i find reputable sources and yeah and he was very much kind enough to reply with answers which was great and that's really where everything kind of kicked off from there and then in that same email um he also kindly offered to place an ad on his podcast once i reached about 10 or so episodes which he didn't have to do and i didn't ask for but that again that was very very nice of him and so when I did those 10 episodes, I emailed him back and said, hey, I'm, I'm at your, I've hit your threshold. And what, how do we do this? And so I put a, put a little jingle of me talking about the podcast on his, on his podcast. And that was really the point where I got a bunch of new listeners pretty much overnight. And that's where things really kicked off. So that was amazing. That was really nice of him. And I'm very appreciative of um, Robin for doing that. So he was a really big influence, very much in the early days, but also I still listen to the history of Byzantium. So still even today, very much an influence on what I do. Otherwise, apart from him, there's of course Mike Duncan of the History of Rome. He's the grandfather of all this. He's the reason that this uh, subsection of history podcasting exists. So to not mention him would really be leaving out a key person. He's, yeah, you ask any history podcast, he's on their list of people who influenced them. So he's a big one. And the other one was Jamie from the British History Podcast, who was the first history podcast I ever started listening to um, and got hooked pretty much immediately. His style of narration, his commitment to the integrity of the sources and interrogating those sources, and, and just, yeah, that, that kind of stuff really, really stuck with me of how to approach history in a way that you're confident in what you're saying and also making it interesting you know really straddling straddling that line of looking at those sources and deciding whether they're reliable or useful and then taking a lot of those sometimes really boring sources and turning that into something that's interesting to listen to and is going to hold people's attention which i think he's very very good at that all three of those are people that i listen to to this day so yeah very much influenced and, and more broadly, the whole History Podcast community is very nice um, and supportive, which is very, very cool. Obviously, that's very, uh, very nice. It's always amazing that everyone in, in the community is very nice. They're very helpful. When I put out a question, I get a bunch of answers with, that are very helpful, which is amazing. It's always nice to have a bit of a community that is very supportive, that you can bounce ideas off, that you can swap promos with and all that sort of stuff other people that understand the struggles you're going through not just in podcasting in general but also with sources and things and trying to find things in different languages and all that stuff just just things that people that can relate to the the struggles you're going through is always really nice in terms of new zealand specific mentors obviously the, the, there's my my um history teacher which i mentioned previously but the the two that probably jump out at me at least since i started the podcast are william ray and andre brett william ray being the voice and and 
just generally one of the main people behind the Radio New Zealand show Black Sheep, which is all about the horrible people um, in New Zealand's history. And he's also one of the people who um, is on the History Aotearoa show. And Andre Brett is a uh, professor at University in Perth, which I don't remember the actual university. Um, But he's also written some books about New Zealand history, particularly the trains, uh, like the the rail network in New Zealand and New Zealand's provinces and the kind of rise and fall of the provincial system. Andre is also a doctor. He has a PhD. He's a smart man. And he is currently a lecturer, at least at time of recording, at Curtin University in Perth. Now, these are two very different people. And it's perhaps is not super obvious why I've picked those people. Because what they did was, in some ways, very small and extremely simple. But for me, was very impactful. All they really did was chat to me about history the podcast and all sorts of things over a drink both William and Andre I met in person just kind of being like let's let's go go have a feed go have a drink and let's just chat because we have similar interests also because in in, in Andre's case because we're both on New Zealand Twitter and we Andre ship posts a lot and I really like it so there was that as well um, we knew each other through that but it was really nice of them to to come and talk to me in person they both said nice things about what I was doing which again is quite simple but it really means a lot and really helps to energize me to do more um, Andre was also very nice to sign my book um, I bought one of his books and he signed it for me which is very nice and William is also working for RNZ put in a few good words for me and resulted in me getting on the radio during the summer programming in the 2022-2023 period um, which was very nice of him as well he didn't have to do that and the key kind of thing here is that podcasting on your own can sometimes be quite lonely if you don't have someone who's working on the podcast with you you don't get a lot of feedback because people just listen to your episodes and then just think to themselves wow that was interesting and then they move on they don't tend to let you know that they enjoyed the episode um, which is totally fine i'm not blaming anyone for that i do it too it's okay but it does mean that occasionally you wonder if you're doing the right things or if anyone is actually listening i know the numbers are going up when i look and it says yeah 50 people listen to this today but it's just numbers on a screen you know getting that feedback from people people who email me or at me on twitter and they're like i thought this was really good i listened to this i learned this that was interesting you know that tells me that real people are listening to it even though you know again fundamentally i know that those numbers all represent actual people listening to it but it's different when you hear it from someone through an email or or on twitter or on instagram or whatever so yeah so if you don't if you're not getting that sort of feedback then it is yeah sometimes a bit harder to keep yourself going to motivate yourself to keep going yeah just if there's not that human interaction and that human connection i guess so to get a little bit of that encouragement especially from people that you respect and that are in you know they're in that history industry i guess this is their job is is doing history stuff so you know to get that encouragement from the people that are doing similar ish 
things to you that encouragement is really amazing and and is is really fantastic not to say that encouragement from people who listen it's not that i don't respect you obviously i respect you but yeah to get it from people that are sort of doing similar things to you means a lot because then you kind of know you're on the right track all right last question from just a kiwi is as this subject is ever-evolving, what directions are you considering in the future? This is actually very similar to another question that I got, so I am going to lump that in with that question and answer both of those questions at the same time, which is right now. So the next person we've got is John M. As I said, his question is very similar, but it does have a few extra bits tied to it. So John's question is, I listen to a few narrative history podcasts. Most focus on a specific society, civilization, culture, or nation. For example, Rome or China. But yours seems to be about the land of Aotearoa New Zealand itself, with both the Māori and later the European colonists being just one part of that history. Was that a deliberate choice on your part? Is it a reflection of your background as a conservationist? Do you think this focus will change as the narrative moves into the colonial period? All of these are very good questions. So thank you, John, for all three of those questions. And thank you, Just a Kiwi, for your questions as well. So there is certainly an element in the podcast of my background in conservation, such as the Bird of the Year episodes. Those are probably the most uh, obvious influence of, of my background. And I do like to read and talk about the different plants and animals and how these fit into Māori culture. In, in the most basic sense, it's something that I'm interested in, so I like to include it in the podcast. It's likely I'm going to talk a lot about how the landscape changed when Europeans arrive, such as logging and draining wetlands or reclaiming land to expand cities. Taio, nahere, whenua is all stuff that I'm interested in, so it's present in the podcast because of that. However, I don't think that is the answer to your question. I don't think the reason that uh, my focus is on the land of Aotearoa New Zealand is because I've got a conservation background. The conservation stuff is mostly just my particular flavour or brand or spin on the history. I think that just adds a nice little, you know, that's the sprinkles on top rather than whether I put the sprinkles on cake or ice cream, if you get what I mean in that very poor metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so was it a deliberate choice to make the land of Aotearoa New Zealand kind of the focal point of the podcast? Sort of is the answer to that question. It's it's a sort of deliberate choice. I didn't exactly consciously make it, but if I'm being totally honest, I don't see how else you would make a podcast or YouTube series or whatever about general New Zealand history without the central focal point being the Fenua, being the actual land of Aotearoa New Zealand. Not necessarily talking about the land itself, but kind of being like, where is our focus? Where does our gaze sit? Our gaze sits around the land. Whatever's happening on the land, that's fine. But our gaze is sitting on 
the archipelago is sitting on these islands. Reason being that New Zealand's history is fundamentally about various cultures meeting and clashing. Primarily Māori and the British, but there's also the Dutch, the French, the Americans, Dalmatians, other Polynesians, Chinese, and a whole host of others. You could certainly focus on one of those cultures, and that is worthwhile, but if the goal is to make something somewhat exhaustive that shows pretty much the whole picture, then just focusing on Māori or just focusing on the British isn't gonna get you to where you want to be. For example, I could have started with James Cook, but then you'd miss out on the pre-European Māori period and Abel Tasman. In addition to this, because New Zealand is a series of islands, that makes it pretty logical for the land to be the focal point. It has a very contained history, because you know that everything happens in this one area. There is a hard border, which is the sea. Unlike, say, China or Rome, where it wouldn't make sense to focus on just the Yellow River Valley or the Italian Peninsula. Those areas have changed drastically over time in terms of culture, and because they are part of wider narratives of the Chinese and Roman empires, it makes more sense to focus on the polity rather than the geography, if that kind of makes sense. For those histories, focusing on the cultures and how the cultures developed and expanded, contracted, influenced other cultures, focusing on that makes sense for them. I don't think it makes sense for a history on Aotearoa. It doesn't make sense to focus just on one culture or one aspect. We want to know what's happening in this particular area, this particular region that is the archipelago of Aotearoa. In saying that, to address Jester Kiwi's last question as well, the focus is going to change as we go forward. Obviously, the bulk of the action is going to take place in Aotearoa, but the European empires are a key part of that story, and so to tell that aspect, we do need to talk about at least some of what is going on outside of the archipelago. The story of Abel Tasman, for example, isn't really going to involve a lot of the actual landmass of Aotearoa at all, really. He was only here for like a week or something, so if we just focused on that week where he was physically here, it wouldn't be terribly interesting and you'd be missing a whole lot of context and a whole lot of interesting history that does kind of affect things down the line and does affect yeah it does generally affect kind of a lot of different things in very small ways the, the stuff that's actually happening right here at the time is not necessarily the meat of that story the meat is really in why he was here and what happened to him afterwards and how that information he got when he was here how was that used in the future so just talking about what's going on physically here is not going to make sense for that story. Um, we need to talk about a lot of other stuff that's going on around it. And a lot of that other stuff is really interesting as well, even if it's not immediately solely focused on um, Aotearoa itself. 
there's also the aspect of lots of people have probably heard of Abel Tasman. Lots of people probably know that he's the first European to uh, turn up in Aotearoa. But lots of people probably don't know who he is or why he came or what his motivations were in general. What kind of person he was like. All that sort of stuff. So it's also about taking this person who is, you know, most... New Zealanders will kind of know who he is or at least know his name and know the thing that he's most well known for but they won't really know anything else about who he is and so it's it's also about it's not just about talking about New Zealand's history it's also about teaching you about this person you probably have heard of and demystifying him a bit. Then, once New Zealand gets a colonial government, it will start projecting its power into the Pacific, and as the world becomes more global, New Zealand will become more prominent on the world stage, both as a political entity and just its citizens in general. You know, New Zealanders end up uh, leaving the country and doing all sorts of things uh, across the globe. Edmund Hillary climbs Mount Everest. He's one of the first people to do so, along with Tenzing Norgay. And lots of New Zealanders served in RAF Bomber Command in World War II. And of course, New Zealand soldiers served all over the world in many capacities during both world wars. Just talking about what happened in Aotearoa during that time would be leaving a lot of stories on the floor, as well as leaving a lot of context there as well. So to really boil the answer to your question down, yes, the focal points will change slightly to be more focused on particular characters and their influence on Aotearoa and eventually somewhat more around the polity that is the nation-state of New Zealand when that arises in our story. Generally, that's how I like to tell stories, around a central sort of person or entity. You would have seen that with, like, the Barnett Burns episodes or the Spates episodes, the focus being around one sort of person or thing. So I hope that kind of makes sense. Again, I hope I've interpreted that question correctly. I found it a little bit difficult to get across what I was thinking. So I hope I'm picking up what you're putting down. And I hope it's going the reverse way as well. If you want to get in touch, my email and social media are on historyaltheodore.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts and sources. If you would like to support Hans, you can do so through donating via Patreon or giving us a review. As always, haere tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time. 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 